Vinashan, we couldn't do Radha, couldn't get over down a key jar. Rindavan dam a key jar, tour dam a key jar, Ramadu Mayapur dam a key jar, Jagannath Puri dam a key jar, Ganga Maituna Devi key jar, Bhakti Devi key jar, Tosi Maharani key jar, Samaveta Bhakti Rinda key jar, Gorpananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Narayana Mahaprabhu. Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Sri Mati Bhakti Vinaya Swami Ichinamani. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharya Nivasesa Sindhavani Paskachadeva Satana. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Parakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvajutam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakampa Trivistra Kipasthya Vitam Pavane Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's the 9th of November, 2016, in Radha Radhanath Temple in Durban, South Africa. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 2, Chapter 5, The Cause of All Causes, Text 30. Vaikarikan Mano Jagne Vaikarikan Mano Jagne Deva Dasha Jigvatarka Pracheto Bani Dravendra Mitraka Vaikarika From the mode of goodness Manaha The mind Jagne Generated Devaha Demigods Vaikarikaha From the mode of goodness Dasha Ten Dik The controller of directions Vata The controller of air Arka, the sun, Prachetaha, Varuna, Ashvi, the Ashvini Kumaras, Vani, the fire god, Indra, the king of heaven, Upendra, the deity in heaven, Mitra, one of the twelve Adityas, Kaha, Prajapati Brahma. Translation and purport by From the mode of goodness, the mind is generated. So, what's the mode for the mind? And becomes manifest as also the ten demigods controlling the bodily movements. Such demigods are known as the controller of directions, the controller of air, the sun god, the father of Daksha Prajapati the Aswini Kumaras, the fire god, the king of heaven, the worshipful deity in heaven, the chief of the Adityas, and Ramaji, the Prajapati, all come into existence. So this all comes from the mode of purport. 
Vaikarika is the neutral stage of creation and Tejas is the initiative of creation, while Tamas is the full display of material creation under the spell of darkness of ignorance. Manufacture of the, quote, necessities of life in factories and workshops, excessively prominent in the age of Kali or in the age of the machine, is the summit stage of the quality of darkness. Such manufacturing enterprises by human society are in the mode of darkness because factually there is no necessity for the commodities manufactured. Human society primarily requires food for subsistence, shelter for sleeping, defense for protection, and commodities for satisfaction of the senses. The senses are the practical signs of life, as will be explained in the next verse. Human civilization is meant for purifying the senses, and objects of sense satisfaction should be supplied as much as absolutely required, but not for aggravating artificial sensory needs. Food, shelter, defense, and sense gratification are all needs in material existence. Otherwise, in his pure, uncontaminated state of original life, the living entity has no such needs. The needs are therefore artificial, and in the pure state of life, there are no such needs. We think about Vamsidas, who didn't eat or sleep, or pass stool or urine, or bathe. He didn't have any, any needs. As such, increasing the artificial needs as is the standard of material civilization, or advancing the economic development of human society, is a sort of engagement in darkness without knowledge. By such engagement, human energy is spoiled, because human energy is primarily meant for purifying the senses in order to engage them in satisfying the senses of the Supreme Lord. The Supreme Lord, being the supreme possessor of spiritual senses, is the master of the senses, Rishikesha. Rishika means the senses, and Isha means the master. The Lord is not the servant of the senses, or in other words, he is not directed by the dictation of the senses, but the conditioned souls of the individual living beings are servants of the senses. They are conducted by the direction or dictation of the senses, and therefore material civilization is a kind of engagement in sense satisfaction only. The standard of human civilization should be to cure the disease of sense gratification, and one can do this simply by becoming an agent for satisfying the spiritual senses of the Lord. The senses are never to be stopped in their engagements, but one should purify them by engaging them in the pure service of sense gratification of the master of the senses. This is the instruction of the whole Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna wanted, first of all, to satisfy his own senses by his decision not to fight with his kinsmen and friends. But Lord Sri Krishna taught him the Bhagavad Gita just to purify Arjuna's decision for sense gratification. Therefore, Arjuna agreed to satisfy the senses of the Lord, and thus he fought the battle of Kurukshetra as the Lord desired. The Vedas instruct us to get out of the existence of darkness and go forward on the path of light, Tamasi Ma Jatirgama. The path of light is therefore to satisfy the senses of the Lord. Misguided men or less intelligent men follow the path of self-realization without any attempt to satisfy the transcendental senses of the Lord by following the path shown by Arjuna and other devotees of the Lord. On the contrary, they artificially try to stop the activities of the senses' yoga system 
or they deny the transcendental senses of the Lord, jnana system. The devotees, however, are above the yogis and the jnanis because pure devotees do not deny the senses of the Lord. They want to satisfy the senses of the Lord. Only because of the darkness of ignorance do the yogis and jnanis deny the senses of the Lord and thus artificially try to control the activities of the diseased senses. In the diseased condition of the senses, there is too much engagement of the senses in increasing material needs. When one comes to see the disadvantage of aggravating the sense activities, one is called again. And when one tries to stop the activities of the senses by the practice of yogic principles, he is called a yogi. But when one is fully aware of the transcendental senses of the Lord and tries to satisfy his senses, one is called a devotee of the Lord. The devotees of the Lord do not try to deny the senses of the Lord, nor do they artificially try to stop the activities of the senses, but they do voluntarily engage the purified senses in the service of the master of the senses, as was done by Arjuna, thereby easily attaining the perfection of satisfying the Lord, the ultimate goal of all perfection. Did any of you wonder what that purport had to do with that verse? Vaikarikan mano jagne deva vaikarika dasa devartaka pacheto svi vahindro pena mitraka. From the mode of goodness, the mind is generated and becomes manifest, as also the ten demigods controlling the bodily movements. Such demigods are known as the controller of directions, the controller of air, the sun god, the fire, the father of Prajapati, of Daksha Prajapati, the Asvini Kumaras, the fire god, the king of heaven, the worshipful deity of heaven. The chief of the Adichas and Brahmaji, the Prajapati, all come into existence. So Prabhupada talks in this purport. Shah's talking about the modes of material nature, uh, since this verse is about the production of the mode of goodness. And then he starts talking about artificially trying to meet the demands of the senses in an industrialized society. And then he compares the processes of jnana, of jnana yoga. Yoga, which is another way of talking about Dhyan Yoga or Astanga Yoga. And Bhakti Yoga. So he's comparing Dhyan, Dhyan, and Bhakti in terms of the senses. So you might have wondered what was the connection between what Prabhupada was talking about in the verse. Obviously, in the beginning, he talked about the modes of material nature. Uh, Prabhupada is talking about how to attain perfection, how to come to the perfected state of life. Of course, the perfected state of life, which Prabhupada also talks about uh, in the purport, is where one realizes the soul who has no material needs whatsoever. The soul has no needs for food or, or shelter or clothing or any kind of sensory satisfaction. And the soul is best situated as a servant of the Lord. So in order to come to that perfection, one has to realize the presence of the Lord in the soul. One has to have some experience of oneself in the Lord. Right? How are we going to probably keep talking about purified senses? Purified senses means the spiritual form of the soul, correct? Right? If the soul is just some light or some energy, it has no senses. Everybody with me? Okay. So Prabhupada keeps talking about the purified senses. He's talking about 
the form, the spiritual form that each of us have, our swarup. Swa means his or one's, and rupa is form, our own form, which has senses. Just like Krishna's cows, they have noses and mouths and ears, right, feet. And even the flowers and the creepers, they have senses, what to speak of the gopis and the gopas and so forth. So to have realization of our spiritual senses and to engage those spiritual senses in the service of the Lord. So what does that have to do with the fact that the mind is naturally in the mode of goodness? Well, it turns out it has a lot to do with it. A lot to do with it. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna speaks quite a bit about how we should engage the mind. He talks about the mind being a friend or an enemy. He talks about being equipoised throughout the Bhagavad Gita. Whenever Krishna defines one who is above the material modes of nature, he talks about equanimity. This sort of equanimity Prabhupada talks about right in the beginning, Vaikarika is the neutral stage of creation. This is the natural state of the mind. Believe it or not. You know, in Kali Yuga, it's hard for us to appreciate that the natural state of the mind, the default setting for the mind, is to be in a neutral state of goodness and equilibrium. It seems to us that the natural state of the mind is something like an adolescent male rhesus monkey in Vrindavan who for no particular reason is pulling all of your clean laundry off the line and eating it just to do it, you know, or the, in, in what's happening now in every country of the world, especially with young, uh, unmarried, unemployed males, that they're just causing trouble, right? Yes? So we feel like the mind is something like that, that the mind is like some sort of a hooligan, you know, that's just going around spraying graffiti on the walls and tearing things apart for no particular reason, and that we're not able to control it. And of course Arjuna complained in this also, Chanchalahimana Krishna, that the mind was jumping. So jumping around of the mind is a product of passion and ignorance. But the mind's natural state is peacefulness. The mind's natural state is calmness, equanimity, and so forth. Now what's really interesting is that as soon as one puts the mind in that state, as soon as, as, soon as one can do kind of a reset, you know, on our machines, probably criticizing our machines here, but as soon as you take your machine back to its factory reset, right, its default value, so if we take the mind back to its, its factory reset, then what happens is you perceive the presence of the soul in God. That's what happens. Why does that happen in the mode of goodness? Well, the mode of goodness can be compared to a clear window, just like you have these windows. Even these are slightly tinted. But you can see outside, right? You can see everything clearly. Now, of course, you're seeing very clearly if you actually go outside. That's even more clear. But if you have a translucent window, like we have in, in bathrooms, right? you, you can see that there's light, but you can't make out form. And then if you have heavy curtains, you can't really see anything at all. So the mind in the mode of ignorance, you can't see anything, it's like blackness. In the mode of passion, it's like a translucent window. And the mode of goodness, the mind becomes like a clear window. Srila Prabhupada uses the example, which is used, by the way, commonly in all of the traditions of the world that encourage meditation and contemplation. He says, if things are, are difficult, if you're disturbed, he said, stop all your activities, sit down and chant Hare Krishna. 
He said, what will happen is like if you have a pond of water that's been agitated and the dirt from the bottom is, is filling it up. He said, but if you let it sit, the, set of the, the, the sediments will go to the bottom and the water becomes clear. So I found it fascinating that this particular analogy of the mind is used by contemplative Christians, it's used by meditating Buddhists, they all give the same analogy. And in fact, there's one uh, gentleman I've been corresponding with about meditation. So he's been a Buddhist most of his life and he teaches a kind of meditation system called Vipassana. And he became very interested in Krishna consciousness because once he perfected his Vipassana meditation and completely calmed the mind, he perceived God. <laughs> And so he, became, he came to the Krishna Consciousness Movement uh, because he had perceived God by doing uh, Buddhist meditation. Because as soon as you become successful, you perceive the form of the soul and you perceive the form of God. Now I find it also fascinating uh, in the Bhagavatam later on in the fourth canto in chapter 1, text 21. Atri Muni didn't know who God was. He knew he wanted to have God, someone like God as his son, but he wasn't sure who God was. So he was just calling for the universal controller. He was doing dhyana yoga, calling for the universal controller, and meditating, and his meditation became successful. When his meditation became successful, his mind became satisfied. The Sanskrit talks about the fire of pranayama, but Srila Prabhupada says in the purport, the Jiva Goswami explains that the fire of pranayam means a satisfied mind. And as soon as his mind was satisfied and peaceful, it says Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva all noticed. Oh, there is somebody with a satisfied mind. And they manifested to him. I mean, they came in person face to face. But they manifested to him as soon as his mind was satisfied. That's interesting, isn't it? Jiva Goswami writes in his Sandarbha that the Lord walks the path of our meditation. That when we meditate, we make a pathway into which the Lord will walk. And again, Krishna talks extensively about what does it mean to have a satisfied mind? What are the results? He talks about equilibrium, that one becomes detached from heaving cold, what else? Happiness. Happiness and distress. What else? Success, Success and failure. One becomes attached from eating too much. Well, he doesn't mention that specifically, <laughs> but I would assume that's part of happiness and distress. Uh, success or failure, victory or defeat. What else? Loss or gain. Loss or gain. What else? Success or failure, honor, dishonor, fame, infamy, friends and enemies in the neutral, pebbles, stone, and gold. And one will see all these with an equal mind. Right after Krishna talks about the fall down sequence in chapter 2, text 62 and 63. Anybody know the, the fall down sequence? First, the mind does what? It contemplates. And then from contemplation comes. Attachment. From attachment comes anger. From anger comes delusion. We're all very deluded when we're angry, yes? From delusion comes bewilderment of memory. You lose your spiritual memory, and then you fall down into ignorance. It starts with what? 
contemplation. contemplation. When the mind is in the mode of goodness and peaceful, it doesn't contemplate the things of the world. And Krishna nicely explains this in the very next verse. What does Krishna say happens in this state of a peaceful mind? The idea, the thoughts, it's not that the thoughts of the mind stop, and it's not the, that the emotions of the mind stop, it's that the mind doesn't contemplate them. It's something like when you walk down the street, so many other people are walking past you. Some of them are nice people, some of them are not nice people, but you're not thinking about them, you don't contemplate them. You just walk past them. Yes? Especially if you're fixed on a business. If you have a particular business that you're fixed on, you just simply walk past them. You're not really paying attention to them. You notice them. You know, you, you notice them. Uh, but, but you're not interacting with them. Neither grasping nor pushing. And the general tendency of the mind is this accepting and rejecting. But when the mind is still in its default value of the mode of goodness, it doesn't accept or reject anymore. It simply observes. And Krishna talks about this in the fifth chapter and in the 13th chapter, how we the self are not the actors in this world. We are simply the witness. We are simply the observers. As soon as the mind comes to the mode of goodness, as soon as the mind comes to the mode of goodness, one experiences that they are the observer. And one will experience that all the thoughts of the mind, the emotions of the mind, thinking, feeling, and willing of the mind are not oneself. And one simply observes. One becomes like the ocean, where the rivers go into the ocean, but the ocean isn't disturbed. And then what happens? A person starts enjoying within. They start enjoying a pleasure that is not dependent on agitation of the senses or agitation of the mind. And that's why Prabhupada's talking about this in this purport. That if you understand that the mind is in the mode of goodness, you no longer, if you experience the mind in the mode of goodness, you're no longer dependent on sense stimulation for pleasure. At all. Nor are you dependent on mind stimulation for pleasure. Mind stimulation is basically the ahankara. You're wonderful. That's the main mind stimulation. Sense stimulation, we all understand what that is. We see something beautiful, we taste something delicious, we hear something attractive, we touch something that's soft and, and pleasing. You know, right? We all understand what, what sense pleasure is. But mind pleasure is someone else tells you how great you are or you tell yourself how great you are. Basically. Or how accomplished you are. I, I did this. I created this. I'm the, I'm the doer. I'm the creator. I'm intelligent. I'm whatever it may be. Whatever the particular flavor of our false ego is. Now all of those sense and ego pleasures are very conditional. Yes? They're very conditional. We, we have to be in a place where we have a contact with the pleasing sense object, which is not so easy to arrange. And, and we spend our whole lives trying to manipulate our, our lives to keep all of our senses in contact with pleasing sense objects, including the mind, the master of the senses, as much as possible. We want to be with people who tell us how great we are. We want to have a life where we can think how great we are. And we want to have pleasing sounds and pleasing smells and pleasing sights and, and so forth surrounding us at, at every moment. 
if that's a little difficult. Right? Is that a little difficult? It's not so easy to do that. And as soon as you think you've done it, then something happens. Right? As soon as you think, just like we're staying in this, in this room here at the temple, so, you know, we come in yesterday and we set it up, and okay, I'm going to put this thing over here and that thing over here, and we're going to be here for a week, which is about how long we are here in the whole material world in this lifetime. It's only about a week. Actually, it's eight billionths of a second for Lord Brahma each of our lifetimes. But anyway, so you think, okay, I'm going to be here for a little while. So you kind of, you know, set up your stuff, and then you think, all right, now I can enjoy, and then the toilet leaks, and you have a flood all over the floor, and you clean it up, and it leaks again, and you have another flood all over the floor, and you clean it up, and it leaks again, and you have another flood all over the floor, and then your best friend calls you from India and says, by the way, your rupees aren't worth anything anymore. And then somebody else contacts you and says, by the way, guess who's winning the U.S. election? And then all of your happiness is, is finished. But this happens in general, right? We set up everything. You understand? We set up, we have it all set, and then something happens. You have a beautiful spouse, and then they tell you they're actually in love with somebody else, and they leave you, <laughs> you know, right? So, Chaitanya was telling me with this, this new thing that they just did in India. All these wealthy Indians that were storing their money in cash, now they're poverty-stricken. They can't do anything with their cash. So this is, this is what happens. And the other thing that happens is even if you set up your life so that somehow you can have pleasing sense and mental objects around you all the time, which, by the way, is impossible, but even if you were to do that, they get boring. You follow? Just like we came here yesterday, my granddaughter said, Wow! But I'm sure those of you who live here never say that when you walk into the temple. <laughs> You know, for uh, 10 years we lived in the Fisher Mansion in Detroit, and it wasn't just gold-colored glass. There's real 24-karat gold in that building. In the floors. Can you imagine putting 24-karat gold in the floor? Mm -hmm. I mean, it only remains on the edges because people wipe it off with their walking. But there's 24-karat gold in the floor. I mean, the whole place is gorgeous. But when you're there all the time, it's just a place. It's just a place. And unfortunately, the devotees who are there right now really do think it's just a place and they're trashing the place. But the problem is that when we see something all the time, we hear something all the time, it, we become immune to it. We, we no longer experience it as pleasurable. Just like, you know, when we're sick and we're in pain, we think, oh, when this pain is gone, I'll be so happy. Right? But like right now, if we're not in pain, are we thinking, wow, I'm so happy that I'm not in pain? Is anybody thinking like that? Did anybody wake up this morning and go, I'm not sick. Whoa! You know, we, we just get used to it. Right? Or even if right now your back's hurting, you know, are you really happy that your teeth aren't hurting? You're not even thinking about it. Of course my teeth are not supposed to hurt. So the, the problem in the material world is even if we have things that are pleasing, we become accustomed to them. And therefore, in order to get sensory or mental happiness, we have to keep changing the input. We have to keep having new sense objects. We have to keep having new people tell us how wonderful we are. You know, we have to keep doing new things to feel that how wonderful we are. Now what happens when the mind... So this is very shaky, isn't it? Which is why the dominant emotion of a conditioned soul is fear. If my happiness is dependent on sense objects and, and mental things in the modes of passion and ignorance, 
my dominant sensation is fear. Because I, I don't, can I, can I get my sense and mental objects? Can I get them? Can I keep them? Can I change them? You understand? Constantly, constantly worrying. Even if you get them, it's hard to keep them. And if you get them and you keep them, they become boring. So you have to keep changing them. You can't, you can't reach a point of stability. What happens when the mind goes in the mode of goodness? Is the, there's such a pleasure in the mode of goodness. Doesn't Krishna say that? One of the dominant characteristics of the mode of goodness is happiness. He says all the gates of the body become illumined by knowledge and one feels great happiness. Now the mode of goodness does not give you unlimited happiness. There, there's, it's not spiritual. But it does give you whatever happiness is there in material life exists in the mode of goodness. And it's a happiness that has nothing to do with the contact of the senses, nor does it have anything to do with this, you know, praise of the ego. It doesn't have anything to do with those things. It's not dependent on them. It's a happiness you can carry around with you, independent of circumstances. That even if you get good food, you get bad food, your toilet leaks, your toilet doesn't leak, you know, you have money, you don't have money, people are criticizing you, people are praising you, you're still happy. Now, not only are you still happy, but as Krishna says, this is a happiness that awakens you to, anybody remember from the Bhagavad Gita? The happiness in the mode of goodness awakens you to self-realization. Nice to have a pandit here. It awakens you to self-realization. That's the whole point of this verse of purport. If you can get your mind in the mode of goodness, it awakens you to self-realization. Krishna says in the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam to Uddhava, he says, if you haven't yet realized the soul, you should try to live in the mode of goodness. Now, modern society does everything to keep you out of the mode of goodness. The main thrust of modern society is stay in the modes of passion and ignorance. Our society today is in charge of people who are in the modes of passion and ignorance, people who are... Uh, polluted vaishas, shudras, and leches. And their happiness is in sense objects and in praise. That's how they're getting happiness. And so they, they want to exploit the rest of the people to give them as much sense gratification and praise as they can possibly get. In order to do that, they want to keep people working hard for newer and newer and different and different sense objects and mental praise. Do you all follow this logic? and our whole industrialized society, which is constantly manufacturing something new to buy. And some, you know, some new movie uh, to titillate your senses and minds, some new object to buy, is very, it's keeping our minds in the mode of passion and ignorance. And as long as our minds are in the mode of passion and ignorance, then we're dependent on sense objects and praise in order to be happy, and we just don't realize God. We don't see ourselves and we don't realize God. And of course, then you take another birth, and you try it again in another body. So people who are a little intelligent understand that, wait a minute, you know, there's, I'm looking for something besides the happiness of the senses and, and praise. And there's something, I want something beyond that. That even if I had perfect sensory and ego happiness, it's still not what I want. Even if somehow or other you could manipulate the material energy 
to give you a constant supply of ever-changing, pleasing sense objects and ego uh, praise, you still would find it dissatisfying because it doesn't touch the self. And this is why even on the higher planets, where they can do that a lot better than we can, they're still not completely satisfied. You had Hiranyakashipu who got that. He got the rulership of the universe and he got all the sense objects and all the glorification, but he was always intoxicated and he was always yelling at people. Those are those two signs that he wasn't happy. He was yelling at faultless people and he was always intoxicated. Two good signs of an unhappy person. So people who are a little bit more intelligent say, okay, I want to find God and I want to find God by stilling the mind, by returning the mind to the mode of goodness. So Prabhupada talks about three ways to do it. Actually, there's more. There's also karma yoga, but he doesn't talk about karma yoga in this purport. Uh, so we might touch on it briefly, but we're going to talk about mostly jnana yoga, jnana yoga, which Prabhupada is just referring to here as yoga and bhakti yoga. So how do the... You can take all of the spiritual paths that people do in the world and categorize it under one of these four categories or some mixture of them. Karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana yoga, and bhakti yoga. Of course, a lot of the religions in the world today aren't even teaching yoga at all. They're teaching karmakanda. They're basically saying, yes, happiness is sensory and ego. Yes, if you want to get the best sensory and ego happiness, worship God. And that way you go to heaven where you have a much better situation of sense happiness and ego happiness. Which is true, but sense happiness and ego happiness are not very good happiness. So most of the religions today, yes, is this correct? They're teaching that as religion, which is kaitava dharma. That, that's not actual religion. That, that keeps you in darkness. Therefore, the Ishapanishad says that those who worship the demigods remain in the darkest region of ignorance, which is an interesting statement. But because if that's your idea of religion, you, you don't really access higher happiness. So let's just, let's not look at that. Let's put aside the karma kandis. Of course, most people are just vikarmis. Most of the people right now on the earth are just engaged in sinful activities to get happiness. So we're not going to deal with them at all. And let's not deal with the karma kandis, those who are doing pious activities in the mode of passion to get happiness. But let's just look at those who are really trying to achieve the mode of goodness and transcendence. We'll speak briefly about karma yoga. In karma yoga, you try to become, you try to make the mind still. By karma palatyaga, Krishna says in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. You take the fruit of your work and you give it up. He says, in this way you find shanti. In this way you find peace. You find this equanimity of the mind. So if you think about this for a minute, if you work hard for a result, and every time you get a result, you give that result to somebody else. Let's say you just did that consistently. Every single time you worked for a result, you gave that result to somebody else. You didn't enjoy the result yourself. What would, be the, what would you get? What would you achieve? Yeah, you'd achieve satisfaction, you'd achieve detachment. You follow? You'd become detached. Does this make sense to everybody? If every time you work for anything, you take the result of what you work and you give it away, you do this consistently, then over a long period of time, you would eventually achieve detachment. 
you'd be working without an interest in enjoying the results of your work. And you would no longer be detached to success or failure, victory or defeat, happiness or distress, and so forth and so on. Now, the person to whom you're supposed to be giving the results of your work, of course, is God. But Krishna says it will even have some effect if you just give the results of your work to anybody, if you just give in charity the results of your work. That's what he says in the 12th chapter. He says, best is to work for me, Krishna Karmani, but if you can't do that, at least give up the results of your work to somebody. So that's karma yoga. And, you know, the ultimate result we want to achieve is not just the thing, but is this sense pleasure and ego pleasure. So you work without being concerned about the sense pleasure and the ego pleasure you get. So that's karma yoga. Does that sound like an easy or a hard process? Sounds easy to you. What do you all think? Does that sound easy or hard? I think it sounds easy. It's actually quite difficult. <laughs> it's quite difficult because you don't get any pleasure until you've been successful at giving away the results of your work over and over and over again. There's no pleasure keeping you going while you're in the process itself. And we're accustomed to working to enjoy the result. So you, you work with, you know, your mood is, I'm going to enjoy this result. But then you kind of force yourself to give it away. And you do this over and over again until the mind becomes accustomed to the idea that you're not working for yourself. But during that period, you're not, what happiness are you getting? It takes a, a, quite a while for the mind to become peaceful like that. So it, it's a difficult thing to maintain. It's definitely a difficult thing to maintain. But there are people who are very successful at this. There are definitely people who are very successful at karma yoga and they make the mind peaceful in that way. And as soon as you make the mind peaceful, the happiness of the mind awakens one to self-realization. So that's karma yoga. Then Gyan yoga, Prabhupada describes Gyan yoga here as denying the senses. So Gyan yoga is a kind of philosophical detachment. Just like in this class, we've been talking a little bit about Gyan. How that happiness through the senses and through the ego is, is very difficult to achieve, yes? It's difficult to set up your life so that you always have it. It's very difficult to maintain it. And it's difficult to keep finding it pleasurable if you have the same thing over and over and over again. It gets, it gets boring. In fact, it even gets repulsive. So that's all a kind of yan, that sort of discussion. And if you meditate on that, those factors of the material nature, then it makes your mind peaceful and steady. Can you see how that would work? Everybody can understand how that would work. If I'm, if I'm discussing the philosophical nature of reality and how one cannot achieve actual happiness from satisfaction of the senses or through praise and honor and ego satisfaction, if I talk about that enough and I absorb my mind in that philosophy enough, what will I become? Detached again. I'll become detached. I'll perceive the world differently and I'll no longer want to enjoy it and my mind will become steady and peaceful and in goodness. Does that sound very easy? No. The reason it's not easy is that we want pleasure 
And simply to deny ourselves pleasure constantly, even though it's illusory, is very difficult. I mean, Krishna says, getting the mind to come to the mode of goodness is like what in the beginning? Poison. So we talked about this through karma yoga, through jnana yoga. They both work, but they are a difficult process. And it's hard for people to maintain them. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll do it and then they'll, they'll stop. They'll, they'll, they'll keep falling all the time because it's very hard to maintain. Then there's jnana yoga. Now, in jnana yoga, you mechanically put your mind into a satisfied state. After all, the body is a machine, the mind is a machine. If you know what switches to flick, you can put your mind in the mode of goodness mechanically. That is possible. The problem is that in order to do jnana yoga effectively, you have to already be a pretty qualified person. If, you're, if you don't have some mode of goodness in your life already, if you don't have some detachment in your life already, doing just jnan meditation is almost impossible. I mean, Prabhupada in explaining why he gave us 16 rounds instead of 64 rounds, he said people in Western countries are not accustomed to sit for long periods and meditate while chanting on beads. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult for most people. There's a growing movement in the world toward teaching Jnana yoga or meditation. Uh, I think, unfortunately, it's mostly being headed by Buddhists. But it, it's not so easy, even to get people to meditate for five minutes a day, you know, or for 15, 20 minutes a day. Most people are too restless. You know, they're, they're just, just too active and they're too restless. And to sit down and mechanically flick the switches for them is extremely hard. So karma yoga, and the qualification for karma yoga is you already have to be doing karma, not v-karma. So that's pretty also hard for most people because most people are doing v-karma. And you can't do karma yoga by giving away the results of your sinful activities. You can only do karma yoga if you give away the results of your pious activities. Otherwise, it's not karma yoga. It's v-karma near yoga. <laughs> And you can only do Gyan yoga if you're a philosophical, intellectual kind of person. You know, if, if the ordinary person on the street can't really do Gyan yoga because they can't do Gyan. Does that make sense? And, and, and an ordinary person can't do Gyan yoga because they can't sit down and do Gyan at all. They, they just... They just you go to the people out on the street and you just say, okay, let's just all sit down and meditate. <laughs> I mean, frankly, even with most of our devotees, it's a, it's a big problem to get people to really do meditative japa and meditative gayatri is a very big problem. Even just 16 rounds. Prabhupada asked us 16 rounds of meditation every day. And if we chant Gayatri, three sets of the Gayatri mantra, and to get people to do that long-term and to really do it meditatively is, is, is just not easy. So how does Dhyan work? Well, if you simply take the mind, and there's, there's several different types of Dhyan. We're not going to go through all of them. If you take the mind and fix it on any object, it can be your breathing which, of course, uh, in the traditional Astanga yoga, the mind was often fixed on the breathing. You would breathe in a particular way. And you just fix the mind on the breathing, or you fix the mind on a candle, 
and whatever thoughts and emotions come through, you neither grasp them nor reject them. You just let them be. And after somebody doing this for two hours, three hours, four hours a day, every day for 20 or 30 years, the mind will come under control. Just fixing the mind on any object. You know, and of course, traditionally, meditators would fix the mind on a mantra. They would fix the mind on Om or Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. We're trying to fix our mind on the Hare Krishna mantra. But even if you fix your mind on your breathing, Atri Muni was, it was said that he had this fire of pranayam. Any object you fix your mind on, you, that you make the mind steady, then the mind comes to the mode of goodness. And there's other kinds of meditation. I know the Buddhist practice is vipassana meditation. I spoke to one of our ISKCON leaders who said that he went for a week to the Himalayas to learn vipassana yoga. He said it was very good, but he wouldn't do it again. The way he described it didn't make me inclined to want to do it whatsoever. But uh, that's, and this gentleman I said who became a devotee became a devotee through, through Vipassana Yoga. What they do in Vipassana Yoga is they use their mind to keep scanning the body over and over and over again. There's a similar system done in what's called Yoga Nidra, where you just focus on, you know, the, each part of the body. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, scanning, 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 scanning. This gives you, again, detachment. It puts the mind in the position of an observer. But after doing this, again, hours every day for years, then you realize, oh, I'm the observer. I am the soul. As soon as you realize I am the soul, you realize something of God. Does that sound very easy? No. That's the hardest, actually of karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana yoga, and bhakti. Jnana is the hardest. Which is why I think in our Hare Krishna movement, we very rarely see yoga mizra bhakti. We see a lot of karma mizra bhakti, we see a lot of jnana mizra bhakti, we don't see a lot of yoga mizra bhakti. Sometimes, but, but not very often. So in bhakti yoga, how do we get the mind into goodness? Well, of course, we use elements of karma yoga, jnana yoga, and dhyana yoga. We certainly do. We offer the results of our activities, which are supposed to be pious activities. They're supposed to be sinful activities. We offer the results of what would be pious activities to Krishna. We study philosophy that Krishna has given us in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita. And the most important activity, Prabhupada says, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita that we do is chanting our 16 rounds, which is Jan. Prabhupada says that's Smaranam. Our 16 rounds are not Kirtan. Our 16 rounds are Smaranam. And I find it interesting that Srila Prabhupada, the only, the only vow that we take in initiation is 16 rounds. We don't take a vow of deity worship, we don't take a vow of reading the scriptures, isn't it? In any of the other processes of bhakti, Prabhupada didn't give us as a vow. He tells us to do them, so that's the instructions of the guru. It would be offense in our job but not to follow the instructions of the guru. But we don't take a vow. Prabhupada only made us take a vow to chant 16 rounds, and he says the most important instruction of the spiritual master is 16 rounds, and our 16 rounds and our Gayatri, if we're second-initiated, are dhyan. That's what they are. So Prabhupada did give us a kind of dhyan yoga as our most essential practice of bhakti. But we know the definition of bhakti is that jnana karma anavritam, that we shouldn't have our bhakti covered with jnana karma anadi, which means also 
Dian. And of course, what's supposed to happen, which doesn't always happen, is that the kind of karma gyan and dhyan that we're doing are not supposed to be karma yoga, gyan yoga, or dhyan yoga, but they're supposed to be actually just parts of bhakti yoga. Just like we have dasya, is the nine processes of bhakti. That's not dasya ras, by the way. In the nine processes, we have dasya and sakya. That's not dasya ras and sakya ras. That's not like raktak and subal. But dasya basically means a bhakti form of karma yoga, where I'm doing service for the Lord, right? And we study the Shastra. Well, a lot of that is yan, isn't it? And then smadhanam is dhyan. So among our basic processes of bhakti, we have things that look like karma yoga, gyan yoga, and dhyan yoga. But what is the difference? What is the unique bhakti feature of activities, philosophy, and meditation that is supposed to, if we do them correctly, that's supposed to bring the mind back to its default value of the mode of goodness and awaken us to self-realization? How is that supposed to work in bhakti? Well, our activities, our dasya in bhakti, is we're trying to satisfy the senses of the Supreme Lord as Prabhupada very clearly notes in this purport, over and over and over again. The karma yogi is looking for his or her own what? Huh? Pleasure. Through liberation. They're looking at least for the pleasure of the mode of goodness, which is an incredible pleasure, by the way. Or they're looking for the pleasure of liberation which is also an incredible pleasure. I mean, the pleasure of the mode of goodness is thousands of times more than sense pleasure. I mean, I remember meeting a devotee as soon as he chanted Hare Krishna, he said, oh, this is a thousand times better than sex. And, and even Buddhist meditators will say things like that. So the pleasure of the mode of goodness is far, far greater than sensory or, or ego pleasure. What's the speech of, of the pleasure of liberation, of Brahman realization, of Paramatma realization? But that's what the karma yogis are trying to get. Whereas when we do dasya for Krishna, we are not looking, of course initially we probably are, but we're not looking for our own happiness. We're trying to satisfy Krishna. And this is the point Prabhupada makes very, very clearly over and over and over in, the, in this purport. Our activities are to try to please Krishna's senses. Of course, we tend to rebel against this very idea, although we speak about it a lot. Because our idea is, if I work for your pleasure, that doesn't seem like a very good program. You know, that sounds to me like some kind of a dictator or exploitive company or something. You know, I'm just working for the pleasure of the boss. But if we realize that I'm part of Krishna, I'm not separate from Krishna. I'm part of Krishna like the hand is part of the body. You know, when, when my hand washes my body, when my hand puts food into my mouth, my hand is also benefited. And in fact, it's the only way for my hand to be benefited. So really, Prabhupada talks about the proper selfishness, right? Actual, our actual self-interest, so often said. So if I'm trying to please the senses of Krishna, because I'm part of Krishna, when Krishna's senses are pleased, I'm also pleased. And initially, that's going to be our motive, most likely. But we want to do our service with the idea of, get, of taking our pleasure 
by seeing Krishna happy. Now all of us know how to do this. It's something that we try to do in material life. I give somebody a gift and I'm happy that they're happy with the gift. Instead of spending my money on myself, I spend my money on somebody else and I give them the gift and I'm happy if they're happy. This is, uh, Tarani and I had this conundrum that what, what do we do when we're traveling when people give us gifts that we can't use, which happens all the time. You know, because most people can't relate to what does it mean to travel all the time. So people say to us constantly, oh, then you're going back to America? They don't understand that we just keep going. I mean, she's going to go back to America before I do. They don't understand that we're just going from place to place. We're not like a traveler. You know, most travelers, you have your home, you go someplace, and then you go back home. So when you've gone someplace, people can give you a gift that you'll bring back home. But we're going to a place, 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 going to a place. So people give us things like sets of towels. You know, I've gotten big towel sets and, and jars. The funniest thing is glass jars of liquids. So, you know, I've gotten, what was it in Russia? I think they three or four big jars of honey. And, and I've gotten big glass bottles of olive oil and... The funniest one was in one temple where the temple authorities, in front of the whole congregation, gave me a huge framed picture of their deities, you know, glass with a, with a thick frame. So, but we're, we have this conundrum that when people give us gifts like this, what do we do? Because they're giving us a gift so they can be happy at our happiness. That's the purpose they're giving it. So, if we just say, I can't use this, I don't want this, I, there's nothing I can do with this, they become very disappointed. And if, we're, if we express gratitude and happiness and we accept the gift, then we have to figure out who to give it to, you know, who to re-gift it to. And you always wonder, you know, can I re-gift it to somebody in the same place? Do I have to wait till I get to my next destination and then re-gift it? And she was saying, they probably don't want us to re-gift it, so it's better to just refuse it. You know, and I've never been certain. What do I do? Do I just refuse it? Or do I re-gift it? Or how do I... Because what are they looking for? They're looking for that we're enjoying it. That's why they've given it. So we all have this understanding that we can get more pleasure by giving something to somebody else than by enjoying it directly. Yes? We've all had this experience? Working hard for someone else. So we just do that for Krishna. Then it's bhakti, it's not karma yoga. It has something in common with karma yoga. And it makes the mind peaceful for pretty much the same reasons. You're working and giving away the fruit. You're working and giving away the fruit. You're working and giving away the fruit. It makes the mind peaceful. For the same reasons it makes karma yoga peaceful, mind peaceful. But in karma yoga it takes a long time and during all the time you don't have any happiness. In bhakti yoga, it can be instant. And because we're part of Krishna, when I give to Krishna just to make Krishna happy, I instantly feel happy. So there's not the poison, the initial poison of the mode of goodness. Everybody follow this? Kaval and Nandakanda. In bhakti, it should be only happy. Okay, what about jnana? So in normal jnana yoga, you're, you're contemplating the nature of the world in order to make your mind peaceful and still. Now when we're reading this philosophy of the Bhagavatam, the purpose is so we become more and more attached to Krishna. 
The purpose isn't so much that we become materially detached. That's just sort of a, a side effect. It's a perk. It's, you know, a collateral benefit. But we're studying this philosophy so we can think, wow, Krishna is so totally wonderful. That's why we're studying this philosophy. We're not studying this philosophy, my dear friends, to become materially detached. Material detachments happen naturally when I become attached to Krishna. Wow, Krishna created the world. Look how he created the world. He made the mind and the mode of goodness. So if you could figure out how to work it, wow, you'd wake up to self-realization. The very thing that drives us crazy, if I could figure out how to work it, if I could make my enemy my friend, wow, I could realize him. I could find him. He's engineered the world so I can find him. And he's told me how I can find him. He's not hiding, you know, it's not a hide and seek game. He's saying, I'm over here. <laughs> like some very little child, you know. Like some very, very little child who just goes, you can't see me. <laughs> Yeah, Krishna's very useful. So he's hiding, but he's hiding in, in plain sight. He's hiding in, in open sight. And he tells you exactly, you know, where to... Or like some little kid, they're hiding under the table. You can see their feet, you know. So Krishna's hiding, but you can always find his lotus feet. So that's why we study again. And the detachment should happen naturally. As we become more and more attached to Krishna, we become less and less attached to Krishna's illusionary energy. I read the funniest thing the other day. It was a devote, I think it was a devotee remembrance. It wasn't something that was recorded. Where Prabhupada was talking to some young woman. And he said, just like you were a very beautiful young girl, he said, but you pass stool and urine and that's not very attractive. <laughs> and Prabhupada said, I mean, the way Prabhupada dealt with people was really, I said, don't try this at home when you're preaching. Okay? Well, and Prabhupada said, said, this material world, this is like Krishna's stool and urine, so it's not very attractive. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. So, you know, when, when you become attached to Krishna, you don't become attached to his material energy. You become attached to his spiritual energy, not to his material You know, if you go and visit their, your friends, and you, we, we have the, the benefit that we stay in so many wonderful devotees' houses, and you go to their house and you wow, look at this furniture. We, st we, went, we went, had lunch at one devotee's house where they had decorated the house by throwing pieces of attractive cloth here and there. You remember that? It was really interesting. You know, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, somebody had just taken off their chutter and kind of ran <laughs> thrown it somewhere. But as I looked at the home, it was all over the place. So there was, you know, tables on top of a table instead of a nice tablecloth. It would just be this sort of randomly thrown piece of cloth with a vase on top of it. And it was, it was everywhere. So I said, oh, this is a very interesting and unusual home decoration. So I was admiring the home. But believe me, I didn't admire the rubbish bin. You know, I didn't look like under the kitchen sink and say, wow, what a nice rubbish bin you have. Uh, so... When we become attached to Krishna, we naturally become detached from the rubbish bin of, of the material creation. And, and therefore, again, it's very pleasing. It's again Kevala Nandakanda. When you read the Bhagavatam, when you read the Bhagavad Gita, it's not a dry, Prabhupada always uses the word dry, doesn't he? It's not a dry philosophical endeavor. All right, we are going to sit here and study philosophy in 
until we become detached. You know, there's, there's a lot of religious and spiritual groups that do things like that. In the medieval Christian monasteries, they would only eat unsalted bread and cabbage soup. We're just going to study philosophy. Even today, there's Christian monasteries where the monks never speak except on Sunday for two hours. They go out of the monastery on Sunday for two hours and they play games and they talk. But in the monastery, they don't speak except when they're saying their prayers together. They don't speak to each other at all. Just detachment, detachment, detachment. So our philosophy is, is full of rasa. It's not dry. And then our dhyan, so our meditation. So we also practice the meditation on an object, samasta meditation, more than vipassana meditation. Samasta meditation is where you meditate on an object. But we don't want to meditate simply on the breath, right, or on a candle or something like that. We want to meditate on Krishna. And if we meditate on Krishna, then our meditation is also full of rasa. Now, I must say that many devotees chant Japa and Gayatri as if they're just meditating on the breath. Although they're saying the names of Krishna, they're not really meditating on Krishna. Now, of course, because Krishna is the same as his name, if you meditate just on the sound of the words, eventually you will understand that it's Krishna. But that will take a long time. Prabhupada said if you just say the words of the mantra while you let your mind wander all over the universe, he says then it's useless. And then he had a long pause. He said, or it will take a very long time. So if one is just mechanically chanting but not actually trying to fix the mind, then you're not doing smaranam, you're not doing meditation. And, you know, eventually, maybe after many, many lifetimes, you'll come to, you'll come to put the mind in the proper state. And also Prabhupada would tell people, uh, his, his general instruction, he says when you chant Hare Krishna, you should remember the deity. When you chant Hare Krishna, you should feel the presence of Krishna. And immediately you should naturally remember Krishna's talks with Arjuna on the battlefield or how Krishna's killing the demons and the cowherd boys are encouraging him with claps. He said, for what are you reading Krishna book? He said, if you're reading Krishna book but you don't remember Krishna's pastimes when you're chanting, he said, this is inattentive, this is some deficiency in your Krishna consciousness. But several times Prabhupada would tell people, if you, if you don't remember Krishna and you can't feel Krishna's presence, all right, just hear the sound of the mantra. He always gave that as a second best. Prabhupada never, ever gave that as the, as the main practice. But he would say, you know, if you, he'd say, when you're chanting, you should feel the presence of Krishna and immediately remember Krishna's activities. And if you can't do that, then just try to hear the sound Krishna. Just trying to hear the sound Krishna is much more difficult. And it actually is very much like the samasta practice, except that you're dealing with Krishna himself. But if you chant Hare Krishna and you feel the presence of Krishna in his name, if you chant with affection, which is nicely explained in the Bhagavatam, Canto 2, Chapter 8, Text 5. Pravista karna randrena svanambhava saroruham. I should memorize this Sanskrit. Do noti shamalam krishna saivasya yatashrat. The sound incarnation of Lord Krishna, the Supreme Soul, which Prabhupada puts in brackets, the Bhagavatam, but it's also, of course, the holy name, enters into the heart of a self-realized devotee, sits on the lotus flower of his loving relationship, and thus cleanses the dust of material association, such as lust, anger, and hankering. Thus it acts like autumnal rains upon pools of muddy water. Are you getting this analogy of the water again? 
Again, this is, this is a, a very frequent analogy used. Something else that makes muddy water clear is it rains. So you make the water still, you don't stir it up, or you make it rain. So the holy name of the Lord, when it enters into the ear, if it sits in the heart on an affectionate relationship, if there's a feeling of affection in the heart, which is the same thing as feeling Krishna's presence. You can't feel Krishna's presence if there's no affection. Then the holy name manifests. Then you realize that the holy name is Krishna. And then the holy name naturally clears all the dirt from the heart and naturally makes the mind peaceful and steady as a side effect. So in bhakti, our karma yoga, which becomes bhakti yoga, is I work in dasya that I give all the results to Krishna. My so-called gyan yoga, which becomes bhakti yoga, is I meditate on the philosophy in order to feel affection for Krishna. My so-called gyan yoga, which becomes bhakti yoga, is I meditate on the personality of Godhead, his name, form, qualities, and pastimes, with affection. Now, all of those, working for Krishna with affection, meditating on Krishna to increase our affection, right? studying the philosophy to increase our affection, this is all about a loving relationship, devotional service, which puts us into a yoga, into a link with Krishna. Now, interestingly enough, karma yoga, gyan yoga, and dhyan yoga first try to put the mind in the mode of goodness, which then leads to a great inner happiness, which can distract the person. A person can get stuck in the mode of goodness because, as Krishna says, they get conditioned by that sense of happiness. Because the happiness of the mind in the mode of goodness is pretty far out. Or it can act as a springboard, it can awaken one to realization of the soul in God. That's what karma yoga, gyan yoga, and dhyan yoga do. They put the mind in the mode of goodness, which is dangerous because you can get conditioned by that. Or it can awaken one to realization of the self and God. And then you contrive to engage your purified senses in the service of the master of the senses. In bhakti yoga, we go right for engaging our senses in the service of the master of the senses. Which then, as a side effect, puts our mind in the mode of goodness. We, we come in it from the other direction, so to speak. Instead of, I put my mind in the mode of goodness that has the ability to awaken me to self-realization, I awaken to self-realization, which also has to put the mind into the mode of goodness. Now, as Krishna says in the 11th canto, if you're not doing bhakti yoga, better to go for the mode of goodness. But that is how we should be doing bhakti yoga. If we're doing bhakti yoga without working on developing our affection for Krishna, then guess what? We're not doing bhakti yoga. If I'm working for Krishna, but there's no affection, I don't really care if Krishna's senses are satisfied or not. I'm doing it as some sort of a ritual. Then I'm not doing bhakti yoga. I'm doing karma yoga. If I'm not studying philosophy to increase my affection for Krishna, my attachment for Krishna, if I'm studying philosophy because then I get this mental satisfaction of becoming detached from the world by my philosophy, then I'm not doing bhakti yoga, I'm doing gyan yoga. 
If when I'm chanting Japa and Gayatri and I'm remembering, if I'm doing it more mechanically to put the mind still, then I'm not doing Bhakti Yoga, I'm doing Dhyan Yoga. And if I'm doing Karma Yoga or Dhyan Yoga or Dhyan Yoga, they're not Kevalananda Kanda. They're poison in the beginning and nectar at the end. And they're not very suitable for the Kali Yuga. They're very hard to maintain. They're hard to do, they're hard to maintain. Klesha Dika Tarashte Sam Avyakta Shakta Teja Sam Avyakta Hikatir Dukam so this is not recommended even mixing our bhakti with karma yoga gyan yoga and dhyan yoga is not recommended what happens is it slows down the process makes the process takes much 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 longer and it makes the process drier and, and more difficult you know just like when we travel people say what can we cook you to, to you know, cook for you to take on the plane I always say well it has to be not liquid because security will stop you if it's liquid you know. in China they gave me some sweet rice and the security guys made me drink the whole thing right there at the security <laughs> I said can I just taste it to show you it's not a bomb no you have to drink the whole thing oh my god you know even somebody gives you salad with salad dressing and they'll be like that lettuce is liquid in it you know you can't bring it through so I tell them you know, I can't bring this liquid thing and it can't be something that's going to make a mess on the plane so sometimes, one time, they gave us something that was so dry. You know, everything was so dry. It was like, <laughs> and we were on one of those cheapo flights where you have to pay for everything. They would give you one cup of water for free only. You know, some of these flights, a half pint of water is four euros. So you know, we didn't really have any liquid. To, to have with our stuff. So that's kind of what karma yoga and jnana yoga and dhyan yoga are like for quite some time. They're like this really dry. We told them not to make it liquid, but you know, no rasa in here. It takes a while before you get any rasa. But with bhakti, there should be rasa right from the beginning. There should be rasa right from the beginning. If we reach, if we are in a point where there is no rasa, then you know what? We're not doing bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is Keval Anandakanda. That doesn't mean that there won't be any struggle. Prabhupada says until Nishta. Nishta is when you're 50% in the mode of goodness. Prabhupada says that until Nishta, there will be a hard struggle with determination. But it should be a blissful hard struggle with determination. It shouldn't be a dry hard struggle with determination. It's going to need effort until we're 50% in the mode of goodness. It is going to require effort, and it is going to require willpower. Once we reach Nista, it requires very little willpower and a very soft effort. But it should be a sweet, hard struggle with determination. It should be something that where there's, there's pleasure in it, there's rasa in it. Um, we're giving some seminars on Raghunathas Goswami's Manashiksha, the Splendid Instructions to the Mind. Uh, we're doing them now at the New Jagannath Puri. We'll be doing them here, Krishna willing, on Friday night and Saturday. And we'll be getting more into Raghunathasko Swami's descriptions of how we can be doing bhakti with this, with this rasa, with this taste, uh, from the very beginning of our practice and the different obstacles that interfere with that taste. So it is now 9 o'clock. So thank you very much. This was a long uh, purport, and I thought it very, very important that we could see what was the relationship because I don't think it was immediately obvious, right? You read this verse, it's about the mode of goodness with the mind and daksha and the prajapadis, which we didn't talk about that. And Prabhupada was talking all about jnana yoga and dhyan yoga and 
the senses of the Lord, and you're like, huh? <laughs> Why is he talking about that? Uh, do we have any time for questions, or should I just end because it's fine? Okay, one or two. Questions that can have very short answers. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Does it help to do the Dan practices during Japa, such as sitting straight and having your eyes half closed and staring at the tip of your nose? Um, if it helps you, you can do that. I mean, we've had some Vaishnavacharyas who chant Japa in dark caves. And Bhaktivinoda talks about, you know, having, I'm sure they weren't like little foam earplugs in Bhaktivinoda's time, but having some kind of earplugs and eye shades. So the Archons do talk about uh, doing some things like that. Srila Prabhupada told George Harrison that he could have a picture of Krishna in front of him. He could hold a picture of Krishna in front of him and meditate on the picture. And of course, we can always chant in front of the deities. It's very nice to chant Japa in front of the deities or in front of the picture of Krishna. Uh, some of our acharyas like to chant with the, the mantra written out in front of them. And Prabhupada says the letters of the mantra are also Krishna. So in many, I don't know, do you have it? We don't have, you don't have the mantra here anymore? So in many of our temples we have the mantra in the temple room. And, and people like to, uh, to, to do that sometimes. So if you find that helpful, sure. But the main thing is, don't chant Japa and Gayatri like a Dhyan Yogi. A Dhyan Yogi is trying to put the mind in equilibrium by throwing the proper subtle switches in the body. And gross switches. The purpose of different gross asanas is if you sit in certain postures, it will naturally put your mind in the mode of goodness. If you breathe in a certain way, it naturally... The, the mind is a machine. If you, if you sit a certain way and you breathe a certain way, your mind will tend to go to the mode of goodness. Can you also do that in bhakti yoga? Yes, but we're not trying to perfect our japa through a mechanical process. It's about a relationship with Krishna. So you want to be careful that you don't end up with yoga misra bhakti. If, if you think, in order to perfect my japa, I have to sit a certain way and I have to breathe a certain way and I have to put my eyes in a certain way, otherwise my japa will not be successful, then dhyana is covering your bhakti and you're mixing your bhakti with dhyana. It, it's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. Bhakti is about a relationship. It's, it's about healing a broken relationship. So if you had a wife or a girlfriend and you got her angry by flirting with other women, which is exactly what we've done to Krishna, right? We're, we're flirting with Maya. We do more than flirt with Maya, unfortunately. But anyway, so we have, we've had this long-term affair with Maya. So if, if, we go, if you go back to your wife and you, and you just deal with her mechanically, if you just say, I know I cheated on you, here's a dozen roses, here's the diamond bracelet, <laughs> Okay, done, right? That, that will not work. She'll say, you're treating me like a prostitute. That's exactly how she'll feel. She'll say, you think that you can do something to buy my love for you. That I'm a person, I'm not a machine. 
So the, the essence of Bhakti Yoga is I've offended Krishna, I've, I've cheated on him, I've lied to him, I've, I've been unfaithful to him, and he hasn't done anything on his side. You know, I mean, if a guy cheats on his wife, we always wonder, hmm, maybe the woman wasn't really a good wife. <laughs> yeah, one devotee told me that she was so embarrassed to tell people that her husband cheated on her. And I said, why? It was his problem. Why? Because people then think, huh, what did you do? So it's not like that. It's not like we've, that we're turning our back from Krishna because there's something wrong with Krishna. Nothing wrong with Krishna at all. And if we approach him and we just say, okay, I am now going to chant your names. I'm going to look at my nose. I'm going to put my mind. I'm going to flick all the subtle switches. And now I'm going to... Krishna's going to look at you and say, I thought you came here to talk to me and be with me. What are you doing? So, that's not... You know, that is a process of yoga. It's a process of yoga given by Krishna, and it will work. But it, it's a process of yoga given for people who are really into being the controllers of their body and mind. And frankly, to, to be really frank, I, I realized that once about fat, doing fasting. That, you know, I really, for a long time, I, I did full ecodicy fast, and I, I enjoyed them so much. And I couldn't, you know, why was it so pleasurable to fast from food, water, and sleep? And then I heard in a lecture, Prabhupada said, the yogis take pleasure in controlling their senses. I'm like, oh my God. That was the happiness I was getting. I've mastered the body. Body says, sleep. Nope. Drink some water. Nope. I am your master for 24 hours. Not for 36 hours. You want to be careful you don't get into that. Don't, don't take chanting as, as in the mood of a Jan yogi, in that egoistic mood. That japa is, and, and Gayatri is a mechanical process that I am going to conquer by being able to manipulate the subtle and gross aspects of the body. And I'm going to bring Krishna under my control by conquering the, the, the breath and the mind and the body. Be very careful. Yes. Oh, just to say one more thing. It's just like if I'm talking to you, it helps that I look at you. Right? If I was, if I was talking to you like this, if I'm talking to you, yeah, Prabhu, you know, that's a really... That's, oh, that's a really good question. That would interfere with my relationship with you. So when we're having japa time with Krishna, it helps if we sit up straight. And we, but that's more to facilitate the relationship. So there's a difference. Am I doing these things to facilitate my relationship with Krishna, or am I doing these things because I want to be the controller of my mind and body? Yes. This will be the last question. Um, are you saying that asanas has nothing to do with bhakti yoga, or does it have something to do with it? The yoga asanas. They can have something to do with bhakti yoga. If you're saying, I'm sitting like this and looking at you so that I can pay more attention to you. Okay? Okay, we're talking. I'm looking at you. I have open body language. I'm smiling slightly. I'm not, that would be a little odd. But I'm, I'm smiling and I'm looking at you eye to eye. Doing that facilitates my communication with you. Okay? 
Does that make sense? Now let's say instead that I was sitting like this to try to control my life airs and my mind so that I could reach some state of inner bliss and then I talk to you. Is that clear? No. Yeah, but we're running out of time. Just a quick one. Is it putting yourself in the position or the mood to access God? Yes. If you, if you can, anything you can do that helps you be in the proper frame to have your conversation with Krishna is very nice. That's going to be different for different people. I mean, Bhakti Noh talks about chanting by Tulsi tree. Where you chant in the temple room. You look at the deities. If you, if you have to go in your room and shut the door. Prabhupada said sit properly. But there's no hard and fast rules for chanting. Do you have to sit properly to chant? No. If you're sick, can you lie in your bed and chant? Krishna's there even if you're sick in bed. Krishna's there even if you're in the hospital with a tube down your throat and you have to chant in your mind. If you do the, the yogic asanas and pranayam as a way of being the controller of your body and your mind so you can manipulate the mechanics of your body and mind and find bliss, then you're a dhyan yogi. That's okay. You can be a dhyan yogi. Dhyan yoga is a bona fide process. It's not so recommended for most people in Kali Yuga. Bhakti is a faster process and it's a bl- more blissful process. But Dhyan Yoga is a bona fide process. We're not saying Dhyan Yoga is a bogus process. If you want to use some of the elements of Dhyan Yoga to help you be attentive to Krishna, that's fine. But there, there's a difference in what you're doing. Everybody follow it's a, it's a different and it's a different mentality. Okay, we should end here. Thank you. Shiva Prabhupada Kinja.